One of the reasons in collecting all this was sort of for me to find out what makes a blind person successful. What's the strategy that I need to learn, the technique I need to learn, or something that I need to acquire? What is it that I need to become successful as a blind person? And every time I think I'd come down to a pattern, I'd find like 10 people to just blow that pattern out of the water. From the Outreach Department at the Texas School for the Blind and Visually Impaired in Austin, Texas, this is A Sense of Texas. Here is your host, Emily Coleman. Welcome to A Sense of Texas. I'm Emily Coleman. A while back, we had somebody reach out to us and offer to share her knowledge with our listeners, and we're so glad she did. Peggy Chong, a.k.a. the Blind History Lady, is sharing only a snippet of her vast information today, and I'm sure it'll leave you wanting to hear more. My name is Peggy Chong, and I write as the Blind History Lady. I started to seriously write articles about blind people, ancestors, I call them, our blind ancestors, around 2012 because I felt it was important. I have been collecting data for decades about our blind ancestors and realized how little I knew about blindness. So what started me sort of getting into the history of it was in the late 70s, I was charged with going through boxes and file cabinets of material that had been collected by the Minnesota State Organization of the Blind at the time. It had formed in the 1920s, in 1920 actually, and collected all this stuff. So I was asked to go through the documents, told what I was supposed to keep, like keep all the minutes, keep the financial records, keep any correspondence that you might find from you know a national level or something like that, but get rid of everything else. And I'm going through some of these things and I stopped to read a couple of letters. One of them were between members and they were talking about meeting with our blind congressman. And I thought, what blind congressman? I should know about a blind congressman. You know, I had never heard of a blind congressman from Minnesota. Of course, his name wasn't in the letter, you know. Um, but I, so I put that aside and I started to pay more attention. After I finished that project, I decided I needed to know who that blind congressman was. And eventually I did learn about him. I call him my first ancestor. He was Thomas David Shaw. Shaw had uh, an interesting life. Thomas Shaw was an attorney in Minneapolis, and he was representing a client in Fargo, North Dakota at one point, and he tried out the new cigarette lighter in the cigar stand down in the lobby of the courthouse, electric one, you know. And when he lit his cigar, um, it shorted out and blew him across the room. And within two weeks, he was totally blind. He spent all of his money on trying to get his sight back. Didn't work. So then he goes to um, his friends, asked him to start giving campaign speeches for them. And he fell in love with politics. So he ran for Congress and won in 1914, served till 1925 when he ran for the U.S. Senate and served in the Senate until his death in 1935. But so I wrote about him as my, my first ancestor, if you will, and I started collecting a lot more information and have been finding blind people 
ever since that I find interesting. I don't write about the Helen Kellers or the uh, Stevie Wonder type people. I write about our blind ancestors who some of them did become famous. Some of them did become wealthy, but many of them, they just became successful in their community, raised a family, held a job, um, owned their own businesses, many of them. And I try to find out as much as I can about what the technique that they used, the strategies that they used to become successful. I try to get a wide variety of men and women whose stories I can document fairly well. I have tens and tens and tens of thousands of little bits of stories of people that I can't put into a whole story yet. So I'm constantly searching. So tell us, Peggy, if you don't mind, tell us a little about Don Mahoney. And I was so fascinated to hear that you wrote a book about him, too, which I saw on your website. But what what about him is so interesting? You know, Don Mahoney was born in 1920, and he was born to a Texas family. Um, he was one of the middle children. There's several children in the family. And it wasn't until some of the older children were reaching closer to adulthood, they realized several of the children in the family just didn't see that well. Don probably started to lose his vision probably around the age of like eight or 10. It's not really known. He doesn't really, he didn't really know either because he was a kid. He noticed though that he didn't always run the right direction, you know, he didn't always catch the uh, the nuances that there was somebody watching them when they were supposed to be in school. And so he got caught a few times. But he also learned, he learned to pay attention to the changes in nature, the animals, the trees, and enjoyed observing all of that, being a part of all of that. The depression comes, the family um, moves into town off of their farm. He falls in love with Hollywood. Now, his in his family, there was an uncle who worked the vaudeville circus, and he would often have Don, even at age four, jumping around and singing on stage, dancing or whatever, and the crowd loved the little kid, you know, and Don loved the applause. He loved the applause, and that was something that he just, he just craved that, um, even in his teens. He snuck off to Hollywood, ran off to Hollywood a couple times, and um, <laughs> didn't work out had to go back home, but he decided that he wanted to be in the movies. He wanted to be like Roy Rogers. He loved to go to the movies. He saved up enough money. He worked as a Western Union telegraph deliverer. So he he went to Hollywood, and by this time, you know, he knew that he did not see very well. He went to the draft board. Uh, He tried to enlist in the Army, and they told him, get out of here. What What are you thinking? You can't see for beans. Get out of here which that upset him because if you were a healthy male and he didn't use a cane, he had no blindness training at all. So he would, you know, people would yell at him about not participating, not, not uh, going to war. And he felt very uncomfortable about that, but he would go off to Hollywood and he would tell them, you know, he'd tell the upfront about uh, with the directors, I can't really read the script. I can memorize my lines, you know, I'll work on all of that. And they would devise ways of having him tactily know on the floor where he should be standing. But what bothered him was he was starting to get a reputation as being, you know, somebody who really wanted to go places and so on in Hollywood. And they thought this would be great. We'll have the blind cowboy and his horse, his seeing eye horse or something. Not for him. 
not for him. But he went back, eventually he went back to Texas and because he didn't want to be the blind guy. He wanted to be seen as the Roy Rogers type guy, Gene Autry type guy. So he went back to Texas and he reinvented himself. He got a radio show, a kiddie show, and it was just like 10, 15 minutes a day. And then when TV started to come on, he got himself a little 15 minute gig and it just kept expanding and expanding. In the middle 50s, late 50s, he was doing six different shows in six different towns around Texas. So he was flying every day somewhere. And in some cases, he was doing two shows a day. So he'd do one in the morning and fly to the next place, one in the afternoon. And uh, this was getting to be a little much because he was it was new turf all the time. So he got himself a partner, um, Gina Claire, and he and Claire, she would stand with him and by putting her arm around him or on his back, she would indicate where the camera was or whatever. And he would, he would pretty much stand in the same area. The studios weren't all that fancy back then. And so since his was a Western theme, hay bales were basically his set. So he would just place the hay bales in wherever he wanted them to be, where the kids would sit on the hay bales and he'd sing to the kids and they'd tell him a story or the kids would come out and dance uh, for the cameras in front of, in front of him and so on. So he didn't have to do too much, uh, moving around and such on the stage, but she would give him all of that. It wasn't until they wanted to syndicate his stuff about 1960 that he came out and told everybody, Hey, by the way, I'm blind. <laughs> And by that time, you know, what could they do? He was already a big hit. Um, you can't just go, oh, my gosh, let's cancel him because everybody loved him. You know, he wanted to be a television star, but he also did realize that's not where the money is. He was a very smart businessman. He put a lot of his money back into it. By 1970, he was on cable. He was off of the major networks because he did not fit the new trend of there were a lot of changes in the 1960s in television, and he didn't fit the new image of television. So he went on cable and had a following for, for, for many, many years. Wow. He sounds like uh, quite a character that did a lot of things <laughs> in his lifetime. He did. And I think one of the things that still is so true today is it's hard for a blind person to get a job with someone else. And many blind people became their own boss. Don Mahoney was his own boss. As a, He didn't work for the studio per se. He contracted with them for a show. And a lot of blind people did, they worked for themselves because nobody would hire them. So they hired themselves and they would have to make sure that they had something that kind of branched off here and branched off there in case this piece dried up or that piece dried up. Either there was some blind piano tuners, the piano tuning wasn't always quite steady. They were musicians as well, and they performed at dances and so on. That's not always very steady. So they might do furniture refinishing, or they might raise chickens or whatever. Don was always in the entertainment field. You know, I've, I've been thinking while you're talking, because here at the school, we spend a lot of time trying to get our students hooked up with mentors to sort of learn about like different options for them and discovering what might be of interest. But it makes a lot of sense to have them also look backwards in time at some of these historical figures and 
what they accomplished, like you said, when times were different or when they had to go about things in a different way. Because as you said, you know, if it's if it's inside them, what helps them be successful, like you can find that through all kinds of stories. It's I mean, it's probably you're probably making a huge impact in that way as well. Well, I hope so. I really want to reach people and talk to them or hope my stories talk to them about, yes, you're in a bad spot right now, but you know what? Learn from that because the bad has something to teach you. And if you can take the knowledge from the bad and turn it into lemonade, into a good piece of energy, um, good connections that you have made during that bad time, you'll never know what's going to be on the other side of that. Um, In Montana, the Montana School for the Blind um, was one of the later starting schools. Texas had been, the Texas School for the Blind had been around for a longer time and a little bit more stable financially with more options. But in Montana, they started the School for the Blind and the School for the Deaf. They sent the kids there. The buildings weren't really built. Back in a lot of the Western states, particularly, they were on... um, maybe 60, 80 acres of land because that's where they grew the food for the school or had the dairy cows and the chickens and so on. And a lot of these kids were going to go back to being farmers anyway, so it was important to learn some of the farming tips and and tricks. Um, But it was the deaf and blind kids that built the barns and the fences, uh, took care of the animals. They built the furniture for the school themselves. One of the blind kids that went there at the early ages, he was an orphan. Uh, he, he lived with an older sister, uh, but primarily lived at the school much of the time. And he learned how to use the tools. He learned how to uh, take care of, you know, when things break, he became mechanical because they had to. It, the, the staff was small. The kids had to help out. The kids had to help harvest the food in the fall. Uh, they did planting in, in the spring. Uh, like I said, they cared for all of the animals. The first buildings that they built, the heat system didn't work, and so the kids ended up living in two rooms of the school building for the winter months of the school year, all crammed together, uh, keeping the place warm and, and inventing ways to keep the cold out. Anyway, when he... Um, as the school developed, they decided to teach piano tuning. Well, you know, he didn't know what he was going to do when he left the school, so he opted to take an extra year in learning piano tuning. Because he had learned a lot of carpentry skills, he could build, rebuild the pianos if they had been damaged and so on. He graduated and wanted to move to a bigger community and find out there's not a lot of call for piano tuners. It's kind of a saturated market. So he did a lot of things for about 10 years, played piano or organ in the the picture houses or backed up people in in, uh, concerts. If they had a choir or what have you, he would do that. He would be the the house organist or house pianist. He often ended up also working as the janitor, and then he could, you know, maybe sleep in one of the back rooms or whatever of uh, the movie house. He ended up owning movie houses. And when he passed away, he owned the largest movie house in a town in Oregon. And he did, in some of his early movie houses, he helped transform them from lanterns to electricity. When the chairs broke or 
the step broke, he had to fix that. Um, he did the wiring. Um, he worked on some of the acoustical sound uh, for the places that he bought so that he could change, like maybe putting coverings or cloth over areas to deaden echoes so that it would better for the performers. Uh, he would build out the dressing rooms in the back. Uh, as well as being the ticket taker and the promoter and would go to the printer to promote the shows, what have you. So he, he did it all growing up, and, but he took that and he turned it around and used those skills. So what I have really come to believe is that it's what's inside of us as blind people and how we deal with the, the triumphs and the tragedies that we have faced as blind people or people in general. How we come out of that is defining who we are. Do you know an infant or toddler in Texas who may have a vision problem? They may qualify for free services. Support from a teacher of students with visual impairment may increase a child's success in school and life. Call 817-740-7530 to find out more. That's 817-740-7530. Thanks, Peggy, for sharing some blind Texan history with us and highlighting many opportunities open to our students and to anyone who is blind. It really is critical for our students to have role models, and it's evident they can come from present day or from the past. From the TSBVI Outreach Department and A Sense of Texas, I'm Emily Coleman. See you next time. This has been a presentation of the Texas School for the Blind and Visually Impaired Outreach Department. If you have any questions or suggestions for topics to cover in future episodes, please contact us at podcast at tsbvi.edu.